Recovery Sort Of is a podcast where we discuss recovery topics from the perspective of people living in long-term recovery. This podcast does not intend to represent the views of any particular group, organization, or fellowship. The attitudes expressed are solely the opinion of its contributors. Be advised, there may be strong language or topics of an adult nature. Welcome back. It's Recovery Sort Of. I am Jason, a guy who is recovering. Hi, and I'm Jenny. I'm a person with long-term recovery. And we're here with Martin today. Hi, Martin. Hello. Thank you guys for having me. It's an honor to be here. How do you like to introduce yourself? I, I know that there's like this shift from like, you know, people saying I'm an addict or I'm an alcoholic to, to kind of this idea, at least outside of the programs, like I'm in long-term recovery or, or something that sounds fancy. What, what's your version of that? <laughs> so I am a big proponent of AA. I do go to AA. And when I introduce myself, I say I am Martin and I am a recovering alcoholic. So that's my kind of fancy term, if you will. <laughs> I gotcha. I gotcha. Um, so, I, yeah, and it's weird to hear that that movement, right? Because I think at least early on for me, in a program, it was like, oh, you're an addict, you're an addict, you're an addict. And then this idea of like, we're anonymous in the sense of like, it doesn't matter that we're in the program, we're all equal and all that. It doesn't matter our job titles. And yet outside of that, how do we present ourselves to the public to let them know that we do recover? And so the long-term recovery is kind of interesting. I, I wish there was like some better word like, hey, I'm a struggling human or... I know. I was... I. I jostled around a few things when I started doing the show with you, but I've stuck with long-term recovery. I think Billy, that's easier. what Billy does. And I'm like, that sounds good. I, I, I'll change again. This time next year, I'll be something else. Absolutely. I don't know. I mean, we're, we're, we're such a label-driven mm. society and, and, and culture and labels matter, right? I mean, like mm. the first thing, you not the first thing, but a lot of people, when they meet someone, they'll say, so what do you do? Right? Mm. Oh, I'm, I'm this, I'm that. Again, the labels is, you know, those are kind of at the forefront of our identity. And I don't know, I think since I've, since I've, you know, been released from, from prison, which we'll get into, I've not consciously necessarily, but just kind of naturally gotten away from attaching said labels to mm -hmm. myself. Um, I don't know, because I just want to, I just want to, I just want to live freely and, I don't want people, I think what it is, is I don't want people to prejudge me based on a label. If that label comes before me, right. right, before I'm actually able to introduce myself and have a conversation, then they've already got five or six or 10 things going on in their head about who I am and what I'm about. So I don't know. I mean, God bless anybody who, you know, leads with labels, but I personally try not to. No, and I, I think that's beautiful. One of the things you said, God, we're going to get off topic before we even start. Uh, one of the things you said was that question of like, hey, what do you do for a living? You know, uh, and it's like one of, at least from my opinion, it's one of the most shame inducing questions for many people because a lot of us aren't living maybe the job title that we wish we were or we're not enough in society and we're searching for that. And so, I, you know, I do, I try to at least reframe it to, Hey, what do you do for work? Right? Because that's not, nothing is the total person. Every little piece of this is just a piece of who we are. Right? Maybe I have depression. That doesn't mean I'm just a depressed guy. I'm a whole lot of other stuff too. 
One hundred percent. And I think that's that's really important to to um, assert because but we do place such a great emphasis on even the work that we do. But I think I think that's good that you make that distinction. Uh, there are many, many facets to us. And and I think now that you mention it, uh, Jason, I think that I think maybe perhaps the reason why I don't, um, you know, lead with labels is because there was there was so much shame and and you know just feeling inadequate around my job title as a mm. young man right i felt that i should you know be in college and be a student and then after that i should be you know making six figures at you know some for, or, you know just just this big grandiose plan and i was never that and so that that deep sense of just feeling inadequate and not enough and not measuring up is what ultimately led into my my need to drink and which evolved into full-blown alcoholism uh, by age 16. And, and so I think maybe subconsciously, that's why I don't place such an emphasis on the labels. I don't know. No, that makes a lot of sense. It's, it's incredible to me. And not that I don't understand it, but it's still, I guess, mind-blowing in some ways. Like a lot of the people I see will be talking about well, why don't you leave this job you're at? Or why don't you do this if it would make you happier? And the priority level our society puts on money and success over happiness, right? Because we don't walk up to people when we meet them and say, man, what do you do for fun, right? What right. You, what's your hobbies? What do you like to get into? What really gets you going? What are you passionate about? We're like, what do you right. do? <laughs> that would be such right. a more interesting conversation. Wouldn't it? Did. But yeah, yeah, but it's it's so hard for people because of our society has it so ingrained. It's so hard to step back and say, man, I can make less money if it makes me happier. And that's right. It's I don't know. It's so fascinating. But anyway, we're we're getting way off. So <laughs> what I'm gonna do is shut my mouth for a little while and let you tell your story of why you're here today. Thank you. So just just to give a, a little backdrop that, that leads into why I'm here today. So I was a pretty shy kid growing up. I grew up with two loving parents, uh, a twin brother, two older sisters. Uh, we grew up in a really rough neighborhood in Portland, Oregon in the 80s. There was, you know, gangs, crime, prostitution, drive-by shootings every night, you name it. But my parents, I think they did everything they could to shield my siblings and me from all that chaos by having us enrolled in after-school activities, Little League, Pop Warner football, Cub Scouts, um, all of these things. And that worked well until I got to high school. And that shyness kind of really overtook me. And so at that point, you know, the peer group becomes more central in our lives and we're looking to gain independence. And so those things were heavy, heavy, heavy influences that led me to hanging out with the wrong group. And with that wrong group comes a lot of bad decisions. And so that's when my drinking started. And I remember the first time I drank, I was at a party at 14 years old and the guy had handed me a beer and I'm, I'm thinking, there's no way I can drink this. Like mom, mom and dad are gonna kill me if they find out, right? We weren't, we weren't raised this way. But I knew if I was gonna be accepted, which was the most important thing by, you know, by this, this group, then I had to do what they were doing. And so I took that the first few swigs out of that disgusting beer. And but I'll tell you, it it it, you know, my chest warmed up and you know, my my inhibitions come down and I'm free to actually be sociable. 
and to talk to girls like this is like this is a miracle right it was a miracle drug and i was like oh my goodness i can finally be myself this little liquid in this little can is allowing me to be myself right and so that was kind of the beginning of my fascination with alcohol it progressed over the next couple of years into something much darker um you know by this time i had started to really questioned my identity and there was some real deep-seated insecurities that started to take root so growing up where i grew up again it's like 90 percent black it's impoverished it's just a terrible neighborhood 15 minutes away at my school you know we were a pretty mixed mixed group of kids and so i noticed that a lot of the white kids they got cars when they turned 16. they lived in the better side of town with manicured lawns and you know no trash on the street and it was just a totally different world and i was thinking in my adolescent and pre-adolescent brain that they must be inherently better than me because they get to live this way and how come all my people you know have to live this way and so that's kind of where that identity crisis came. I remember, you know, around 15, 16 years old, I would literally, you know, dress a certain way, talk a certain way around my peers in my neighborhood. And I had an after school job at, at an ice cream parlor at 16. And so when I would go there, all the kids that worked there were white and I would hang out with them after work. And I would literally change my clothes to like the you know, the Tommy Hilfiger and the polo and, you know, kind of the more preppy. And I would literally change my vernacular to match how they spoke because that's, that's, that's how I was going to be accepted. And so I'm navigating between two worlds, but I'm never really feeling entirely comfortable in either one, if I'm being honest with you. So it just caused more internal conflict that, that I didn't know how to cope with. And so the alcohol became my best friend and a way to escape and not feel and that's when it really it really took a dark turn and so i became an alcoholic by age 16 and that eventually led into the reason why i'm here because on new year's eve of 2003 it started off like any normal day i had i was living with my girlfriend in vancouver washington i worked at a warehouse in portland i kissed her goodbye I go to work at 6.30 a.m. I remember we had gotten off work because of the holiday and it's about 11.30 or so and we're wrapping things up, ready to clock out. And my boss jokes with us and says, you guys go out and have a good time tonight, but please don't let me wake up and see you on the front page, right? Of course, we laugh it off. We clock out, we leave. I go to the liquor store. I bought a fifth of gin and then I proceeded to my parents' house to hang out with my twin brother because that's where he was living at the time. And so I get there, we hang out, I drink the alcohol, and then he and I had made plans for later that night to attend a friend's house party. And after I drank that fifth of gin, you would think that would be enough for one person. It was not. I went back to the store. I bought four 24 ounce cans of beer. If you're doing a quick math on that, that's 96 ounces of beer that I consumed between the hours of about five and eight o'clock that night. So then my brother and I decided we would go to another friend's house in the meantime to hang out because we didn't want to get to the party too early. So we get to that friend's house, we hang out, the three of us drink a pint of Hennessy together. It's now about 11 o'clock. So we go to exit his apartment to go to the party. And as we're walking out the door, his mother admonishes us and says, 
Y'all be careful tonight. You hear? And of course, we said, yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. You know, obviously, we had no intentions of being careful that night. So we get to the party. We see a bunch of old classmates. We drink more alcohol. Everything is great. We bring in the new year. We exit the party at about 12, 15 a.m. And I take my friend home without incident. I get back onto the freeway to take my brother home. And at this point, all I'm thinking about is how exhausted I am. And I just want to get home and go to sleep because I know I didn't have to work the next day. I've been drinking all day. I think I had one meal at around 4.30 or 5 o'clock that, that evening, early evening. And on the freeway, I begin to elevate my speed to about 80 miles an hour. And this makes my brother nervous. He says, hey, man, you know, you should slow down. You know, the police are out. You know, it'd be in the holiday and all. And I thought, you know, well, that makes sense. So I went ahead and slowed down. So we continue to drive on the freeway, take the exit about 10 minutes later. We're now driving in a residential area. And again, I begin to pick up my speed. It's about 60 miles an hour in a 35 zone. And he, you know, this time he gets mad. He says, slow down before we crash. And I snap back at him, man, calm down. I know what I'm doing. I got this. Nonetheless, just to keep him quiet, I went ahead and slowed down. So we continue to drive and we're just about to turn on to our parents' block where I'm going to drop him off. And he suddenly realizes he's all out of cigarettes. So he says, hey, bro, let's, let's go up the road so I can get some cigarettes. I'm all out. And in my mind, I'm thinking, great. You know, here's one more stop that I don't want to have to make. So we continue to drive for two blocks. And then about two blocks from that point, there's an intersection. And I'm looking up at the light and the light is yellow. And as intoxicated as I was, I still knew there was no way I was going to make this light. But it didn't matter because in a split second, I had made up my mind, I'm not going to wait. I'm going to go right through. So I immediately punched the gas and I'm almost, you know, tunnel vision. I don't see anything to the right or left of me. And within seconds, just boom. I mean, just this earth shattering crash. And the airbag embellows my face and my car comes to a slow winding halt. And I immediately look to my right to see if my brother's okay. And he appears, he appears to be okay. So I'm, you know, I'm somewhat relieved. At the same time, a guy comes rushing up to the driver's side door frantically. Are you guys okay? Are you guys okay? Yeah, we're okay. I tell him. And I step out of my vehicle. And most people, most decent people at this point, would go check on the people they had just hit. I did not. Because again, I was so consumed with myself and everything, you know, that pertained to me. I'm looking at my vehicle, which is my prized possession, right? It's a status symbol. It's a nice newer, you know, vehicle, custom rims. I worked hard to get it. And I'm crushed because I'm looking at my prized possession in a heap of crumpled metal. And then my brother gets my attention. And he starts to point across the street and he's like, hey, bro, he said, I think I see somebody lying down on the pavement over there, man. And um, I don't think they're moving. So instantly I snap out a bit and I'm like, oh, my God, what have I done? Within seconds, lights and sirens are just everywhere, lighting up the sky. And the policemen are on the scene and they're talking to me and they take my brother a few feet away to interview him. In about five minutes or so into that interview, that officer had confirmed to me what I had already known to be true in my heart, which was that that person who was lying on the pavement had died. 
And they informed me that another was being driven by ambulance uh, to the hospital just blocks away. And so I'm placed under arrest. I'm put into the back of the cruiser. We head for downtown for processing. And from the back seat, I'm listening to the police radio because there's a lot of chatter about the crash, obviously. And about 10 minutes into that ride downtown, it sounded like, unbeknownst to me, there was another passenger who was in the vehicle who had died at the scene. And so I asked the officer from the back uh, back seat, I said, excuse me, sir. I said, did I just hear that correctly? Did, did I just hear that somebody else uh, died in that in that crash? He said, unfortunately, yes. So, I mean, I was already like just the sheer devastation of knowing that you're responsible. I'm 24 years old, right? And I, I'm now responsible for two human beings no longer being here, two people I had never met never talked to, had no idea who they were, what their lives were like, who their kids were, nothing. So I'm responsible for that. But there's another side of this where I, I still know in my very intoxicated mind that in the state of Oregon, a DUI manslaughter qualifies as a violent person-to-person -person crime, which requires a mandatory minimum of 10 years day for day in state prison. You will not earn a single day off for good behavior, for going to school, having a job, 10 years flat. And now I've got two manslaughters. So I'm, I know I'm looking at about 20 years in prison at this point. So we're driving through my neighborhood on the way to, to, to downtown and I'm looking around, kind of taking in my last memories, if you will, as horrific as they were. Uh, but I knew I was not going to see that neighborhood for about the next 20 years. So. That became the the worst day of many people's lives. God, that's a uh, that's a tough story, Martin. I, I really appreciate you even being willing to come on and share about it. I, I just there's so much guilt and shame when we stop using our substance, right? You know, I would venture to say I think guilt and shame is kind of what shoved a lot of us in the direction of using the substance for relief to begin with just no ability to tolerate the amount of guilt and shame that was felt in our bodies, whether that's given to us by our parents, by society, by our peers, whatever it is, right? There, there's just this high level of like, I am a terrible thing. And I, if anybody ever finds out, they'll hate me the way I hate me. And so I, I kind of think that's why we start using the substances. But then, you know, at least my experience getting off of it, people feel this great guilt and shame. And I can't imagine having such a, a, a big event in my life, right? Like I, I, I felt guilt and shame for, you know, and, and I'm not trying to minimize my own experience, but for, for cheating on a lot of people and for hurting a lot of people's feelings and lying and, you know, doing some not so great things. But like, that is a really big guilt and shame piece to try to I don't want to say get over, but to tolerate and to live with and to move forward with. And that's got to be incredibly challenging for you in the, in the today. Well, right. And so I'll say that for the first three years of, of my incarceration, I lived with that shame and guilt immensely. So, well, but before, before I get there, let me just, let me just back up and say what, happened three days after this crash that actually set me on the, the path that I'm on now and the work that I do. So 
three days in, I'm in my cell, I'm minding my own business. I get the Oregonian newspaper uh, slid underneath my door by some random person. I don't know. I, I didn't ask to see a paper, but this paper comes under my, my door. And I think, well, there must be something here for me to read. So I'm thumbing through that paper and I see my picture on the front page of one of, one of the sections. And I begin to read the article. And with each paragraph that I read that morning, um, for the first time in several days, my faceless victims became people. Mm. These people had a story. And their story was, ironically, that they were in recovery at the time of this crash, that they had devoted their lives to helping people get clean and sober. Uh, I remember the, the, the two women who passed away, they would watch women's kids so that they could attend AA and NA meetings. They volunteered at Volunteers of America. They volunteer with Mothers Against Drunk Driving, if you can imagine that. So when this crash happened, I mean, the, the community was crushed. I mean, the community was, the recovery community, they had two pillars who had devoted their lives to this service were now taken away. And so the columnist had highlighted all these, 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 these ironic uh, points. And then he concluded with a statement that, that changed my life forever. He said, quote, perhaps the person they will have ended up helping the most is the man who's charged with killing them, end quote. And even though I'm 24 years old, I know I'm, I know I'm looking at about 20 years in prison, so I couldn't fully grasp the value in what he had just said, but it was so profound that I was determined to figure out what those words were supposed to mean for my life right. going forward. So like I spent the next six or seven months literally meditating on that phrase, you know, hearing it just over and over and over in my head. And then it came to me, you know, it, it didn't come from some vivid dream or, you know, some thunderous voice from the heavens or anything like that. But, you know, just the, the, the firm conviction that the only way this tragedy will not be in vain is if I carry on these people's legacies, right? If I devote the rest of my life to do everything I possibly can to ensure that something like this never happens again so that no other family has to feel this utter devastation. So in that moment, you know, I vowed to do that. I didn't know what that was going to look like over the next however many years I would go to prison. At that point, I didn't know, but I knew that I was committed to that cause. And so fast forward to go into the, 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 the part of guilt and shame for the first three years of my incarceration, I'm, I'm trying to, you know, set myself on this mission of, you know, learning everything I could about my own addiction so that I could help other people, right? So I'm taking these, I'm taking one community college course at a time, which is what they offered at the prison. And I'm, you know, getting some, some momentum in that regard, but I still feel stuck, right? I don't feel like there's a lot of internal work going on. And I realized what it was, was that utter shame. I think guilt and shame are different, mm -hmm. right? Guilt is guilt is a healthy thing. When we do something wrong, we feel badly about it. It should lead us to not do the same thing. Shame is more of like an overarching dark cloud that you can't escape, mm -hmm. right? It is a character assassination. I am terrible. I am not worthy. I don't deserve. I right? It's just these character um, you know, uh, assassinations that, that keep you stuck, right? There's no, there's nothing healthy in my mind anyway about shame. 
there is when it comes to guilt because it's more short-lived and it's a behavior corrector, right? It's, it's used to correct the behavior. So I was wallowing in shame and I felt, I thought at least that that was, that was my way of kind of honoring my victims because I refused to ever forget about what happened. And when I say that every December for the entire month of December, I would relive that entire day, every day for all 31 days. From the moment I woke up and kissed my girlfriend goodbye to the, the moment I was in that police cruiser headed for downtown, I relived that day. And it it had me depressed. I was not working out like I normally would throughout the, throughout the year. Um, I wasn't going down to eat the meals in the chow hall. I would sit on my bunk and eat a ramen soup or something just to have some nourishment. I wasn't my, you know, regular kind of, you know, gregarious self. And I felt that that's, you know, that was necessary for me to, you know, show my victims or I don't know, show myself that I was never going to forget this, that I, that it was, this was my kind of my burden to bear. But really what I realized, and it took three years for me to realize this, was that all I was doing was preventing all of my energy to go into this mission that I swore I would do. I mean, I stood up at the at the sentencing and addressed the media and the, the members from the MAD community, the friends and family of my victims, that this would be my cause for the rest of my life. And I realized that I wasn't fully honoring that because the energy that I had, we only get so much energy in a day. I was choosing, it was a choice. I was choosing to waste it on this, you know, pity party, this, you know, just miserable state that was not allowing me to throw myself into this, this cause and this purpose, like I said, I would do. So once I, once I understood that, then, you know, it, it kind of clicked for me. And I, I, I allowed myself to release myself of that. And I was able to fully commit myself to this, to this cause and this mission. And, and thank goodness I did, because, you know, it, it allowed me to get to where I needed to be to, to, you know, really uh, to honor them in the way that they deserve. I feel like with that, that article from the paper and the statement the reporter ended on there, we could probably wrap up this podcast and it's like the most powerful podcast we've done, period. <laughs> like we don't even have to do anymore. I, I, we're going to do more. But I, I just, that was like such a, a, I don't know, I got a little bit of chills from that. Guilt and shame. So I, I can't say that I totally 100% agree with this anymore because I've heard some other takes, but Brene Brown presents them as... Guilt says I did a bad thing. Shame says I am bad. And those are two very, very different concepts. And while I don't know that that's completely accurate, I think it is a really good framework to just kind of begin looking at guilt and shame as as having some different things. I, I do think there's times where mm, guilt doesn't necessarily need to change our behavior. Like sometimes we just need to feel guilt because we feel guilty because we're human and that's how it is. And it doesn't mean we're doing the wrong thing. But also a total a side note and i'm sorry if this is offensive to to oregon persons but oregonian is like the worst word in the world <laughs> when you said that i was like that word is awful oregonian i don't know why it's funny enough i was just in portland like two weeks ago um and, and I had this vision because, you know, Oregon has decriminalized everything and they're about to have psilocybin as a therapeutic intervention. And I was like, man, this place is going to be like utopia. And I pulled into Portland and holy fuck, that city is rough. 
Like, I was like, wow. It's wow. changed a lot. I was I was quite surprised. I didn't recognize my own neighborhood. You know, 17 and a half years is a long time, and a lot has changed, and not so much for the better. I was I was I was taken, you know, by just the massive amounts of homelessness, yes. the homeless camps, the trash. I mean, it is it is it is insane. And there is crime that is pervasive. And the police seem like they literally do not care. It's crazy. They, yeah, the whole, you know, the 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 defund the police. I mean, just 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 across the board, there are you know, problems from the, you know, the, the, the city government, uh, the state government, just across the board. And Portland is really feeling, um, you know, the brunt of that. So I'm sorry that, uh, it wasn't a great experience for you. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't a terrible experience, although the place we tried to eat, which was supposed to be open at four was not open. And I was pissed because they looked really good. Um, but that's a whole other story. So yeah, we, we came down from Seattle and we pulled in, uh, I was like right on the north side of Portland to the hotel we were going to stay at for the night. And we took like the first exit off the freeway into Portland. And there was tents for the homeless right there right. on the first exit. And I was like, oh. And honestly, I, I got to say, so we, we just did a, a trip kind of across America and back. For, um, homelessness really stuck out to me everywhere I went. Because I get up early and so I'd go out in the morning to get a coffee and that's when, you know, a lot of the homeless seem to be uh, pretty active and moving around and everything. And I'm like, holy fuck. Like, I, this is not what I expected from my U.S. tour was to, like, just see homelessness everywhere. Doesn't it's it sad. get cold there? Doesn't it get pretty cold in Portland? Um, well, not not terribly cold. No, it's, it's, it's more it's it's like it won't get terribly hot. Although the day that I was released last year on June 28th, it was 117. Hottest day on record ever. And I'm thinking, <laughs> great. I mean, you know, listen, I'm not complaining. I'm free, right. but oh my goodness. Um, but no, normally like the hottest you're going to get in the summer is 90. And the coldest you're going to get in January or February is probably like 40. Oh, well, then it's a great place to be homeless. Which is that was that was where I was getting at. <laughs> if you're going to be yeah. homeless, why not Portland? It's nice. <laughs> Which is is interesting because where Portland is, it doesn't. It must be like the, I don't know. I don't know why. It, it rains about 300 days a year. Is what is what happens. I mean, it it, it just rains just because. Well, it totally didn't rain the day I was there. So thank God. Very good. This episode has been brought to you in part by Voices of Hope, Inc., a nonprofit recovery organization made up of people in recovery, family members, and allies. Together, members strive to protect the dignity of those that use drugs and those in recovery by advocating for treatment, harm reduction and support resources, and mentoring. Please visit us at www.voicesofhopemaryland.org and consider donating to our calls. You know, you uh, expressed the thing and kind of goes back to that article and that statement of like, perhaps the life they changed the most was, was yours, right? I've thought a lot of times about like, 
am I doing enough in recovery, this, that, and the other. And, and eventually, somewhere along the way, the idea came to me like, man, if you touch and help shift one life, isn't that enough? And like right. the chances are, uh, and this isn't like an ego statement or anything, but like I've probably touched more than one life at this point in my life. Yeah. But I, I don't know. Like I've never, so I've thought about this idea uh, at a time when, when my ego felt out of control, I was like, man, I want to pray for humility or, or less ego, but like I'm scared to, because what would it take? to make me more humble, right? Do I need to end up like in a wheelchair where I can't run with my kids anymore? Like, what is it really going to take to do that for me? And I was terrified of that idea. And and it kind of like that twisted when you said, you know, perhaps the life these people changed the most was yours. I was like, holy shit, I want to help change people's lives for the better. But at what cost? Like, would I be willing to go through something like that to help change somebody else's life? Like, that's, I guess, when we get into the idea of helping change a life, I would never really think, oh, yeah, well, I'm willing to go to the lengths of giving my own to do that. Like, that's, that's kind of wild. Well, but aren't you doing that? I mean, the, I mean, just, just the, the, the interviews you're having, you're sharing your life, like the most, you know, intimate parts of your life. The parts of your life that you're not so proud of, you're sharing mm -hmm. that with the world. And people identify with that. That resonates. And if, if, it's, if it's just getting somebody, if it's giving somebody a new perspective to think about their own life and what they're going through, if it's giving them a tool to add to their toolkit to be able to cope with something better so that they can either stay in their recovery or to get into recovery, then isn't that changing lives? I mean, everybody's everybody's low doesn't have to be right. Like just this sheer tragedy, right? Everybody's rock bottom is different. Rock bottom is when you stop digging. That's your rock bottom. Right. And so, and so um, everybody's, everybody's journey and the impact and the ways in which we reach people is going to be different because we are different and diverse as human beings. Right. right? And so again, it should never be a comparison. And again, we do that with a lot of things in our society, right? Comparing the jobs and the amount of money and the car we drive and the house we live in and the bank, all this stuff is a comparison. And it 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 takes us from, from just, you know, being within ourselves and being in tune with ourselves and understanding, well, you know, what is my purpose? What is my cause? How can I have an impact on my world today and the people around me today, right? This person may be, you know, affecting you know a million lives and i'm affecting two but guess what we're 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 both you know essentially doing the same thing by helping humanity mm. right and so as long as everybody is kind of driven by that and not what this person is doing that person is doing what they have what i don't have you know if we can get away from that then we would do ourselves a real service bring fulfillment to our own lives enable us to be the best uh uh humans we can be which you know it just inherently affects those around us in a positive way. And so for this, this, this was my moment to, um, you know, kind of assess a lot of things going on in my life and kind of, you know, I, so I, you know, delved into my education and uh, started taking sociology classes and psychology classes and, 
learned a lot about kind of the origins of my addiction, uh, both the the kind of broader societal effects that that um, uh, that, that played a part, but then also the the cognitions and and the psychology and psychosocial development and all of those factors that weighed heavily on me that led me to my addiction. And so, the more I learned, you know, I ended up getting a um, I got a bachelor's in sociology. Uh, I got a master's in psychology. I had to pay for all of my education. The, 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 the system doesn't pay for you to go to college anymore like they did in the 90s, hmm. right? So I was, I was fortunate, well, fortunate and unfortunate. So I lost my father three years into my sentence hmm. and he, but he had worked hard his whole life to, to take care of the family. So he had insurance policies, he had a pension. So I was able to get that money even while incarcerated uh, got that money put on my account and I was able to then fund my education. So I took courses, distance education courses from uh, Louisiana State University, Indiana University. Nothing is online. We don't have online access to anything in Oregon prison. So everything was done through the mail. And so I wound up uh, with those degrees and then I went into a substance abuse program and um, I went through it as a participant first to understand everything about the program. And then I was able to intern there. This is, again, within the prison setting. And I started to mentor guys. And I would lead the groups. And I would learn about assessments and, you know, uh, uh, treatment plans and all that good stuff. And so I, I was able to get state certified as a substance abuse counselor a couple years before I was released. And so that enabled me to go right into this field um, upon release. Uh, meanwhile, uh, about six years before my release, they started to bring in victims of DUI drivers, people who had lost loved ones to DUI drivers. They would bring them into the prison and it, it would be 50 inmates in a circle. And they started these DUI victim impact panels. And I remember one of the guys, he was doing life. I had never met this guy, but he, approach, he approaches me in the hallway. And he says, hey, man, he says, um, you know, we're going to start these DUI victim impact panels. And I know that that's why you're here. And I'm thinking, well, how do you I don't know you. How do you know why I'm in prison? People have a way of finding out why you're in prison. Right. So he knew I was in prison for a DUI crash. And he said, you know, I'd love for you to come and share your story. And I had never, you know, told my story. I never verbalized this thing from beginning to end. But I knew that this was happening for a reason, right? And if I'm going to be on this mission to honor my victims and try to prevent this from ever happening again, then I have to do this as, as uncomfortable as it is because I, you know, I was pretty much, you know, uh, an introvert, really didn't care to get in front of people and, and, and talk about the worst day of my life. But if it was going to do some good, like you said, affect that one person, then I was willing to do that. And that was the beginning of, of this second part of this mission where I speak um, uh, in different states, some remotely, some in person at DUI victim impact panels. I've spoken to kids who have gotten a minor in possession charge. So they're, started, they're starting to head down the wrong track. I use my story with you know a slight emphasis on some other things to be able to reach them so that they don't find themselves living this life of addiction and incarceration and and jails and institutions and death, right? And so um, that's 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 kind of been uh, in, in large part what I've done since I've been out is continuing with this 
mission. I'm a drug and alcohol counselor and work on a suicide prevention line. And I talk to military veterans who struggle with PTSD. I talk to seniors who are lonely. I talk to youth who are in a crisis. And I talk to people struggling with addiction to get them connected with resources. So I love what I do. Um, I love my job. I wake up every day and, and I'm, I'm literally excited and looking forward to the day, right? And, um, and then I, I relish the opportunities to speak at, at panels uh, whenever and wherever I can. That is an incredible, I don't want to say finish because you're not done, but just finish to your story or, or transition in your story maybe is a better wording for that. It, it really is. It's remarkable. I, you know, I wanted to ask, you mentioned AA earlier on in the podcast. Um, did you get into the AA in prison? Yes. So around 2014, so I still have seven years left. Um, a buddy of mine was going to AA and, you know, he'd be talking about these steps, you know, these 12 steps and, you know, moral inventory. And I mean, he like, he's like, he lives and breathes AA. He had been down like, you know, 22 years and he's, he's got a life sentence. So he may never go home, but he was all about AA. He'd be on the yard, you know, with the big book, you know, talking to guys about AA. And I just like, I was like, okay, this guy has figured it out. Right. This is his cause. This is his purpose. I was kind of going a different direction in my recovery, but this was, I mean, it was just, it was, it was intriguing to see somebody so committed to something and, you know, the way he talked and the way he, like, he really understood himself. He understood his vulnerabilities. He understood that this was a, a you know, a, a day by day thing that he had to wake up and commit himself to right? One day at a time, that whole mantra. And so I was just curious about it. So I just went one day, they did it. Um, they have volunteers come in every Saturday uh, from 10 to 11.30 in the morning. They would sit, sit around in this room and, it, you know, um, it was AA. And, um, you know, they're doing this serenity prayer thing. And I'm like, okay, I mean, it, it sounds like a chant, so to speak, but it was, but it made sense, right? God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. Okay, well, I want to I want to do that because I ruminate on so many things that are out of my control, right? And how great it would be to not do that, to understand what's in my control, what's not in my control, and just grant me the, you know, a, a, a serenity with that. And um, so I don't know, there were just facets of it that really resonated. So once I bought into those different components, then I just started going, you know, almost every week. And then once I had done the steps thoroughly, and then when I got into the, the drug and alcohol program and was mentoring guys, then I would work the steps with them, right? And so, and, and in doing that, it reinforced my own recovery. And so, and that's the beauty about this work is that, you know, it's not that just that you're helping someone else, although that's a great thing, but it also helps us in, in turn. And it reminds us, you know, of the daily work that we need to do, because even though it's been, you know, 18 and a half years, you know, um, uh, since drinking, I still know in my addicted brain and in my rational brain that I'm literally one drink away from, from catastrophe. Right. Like I know that, right? Um, so yes, AA, and, and so since I've gotten out and I'm in Pennsylvania, and so now I got to find, you know, a new home group and all that. 
And I just kind of, you know, took to, to, to Google and, and found some places around here. And so now I, I go and, and, and meet with these guys and, you know, they're, um, you know, uh, there's no minorities in, in the group. It doesn't matter to me because, you know, I mean, it could be a group full of minorities and we could have nothing in common. So I don't base everything just on the sheer fact that, right, these guys are all, you know, older or white or, or whatever the case, because we all have that common thread of addiction. And we all have that common thread of, of you know, buying into this fellowship and, and, you know, sharing, you know, who we are and our struggles and, and just leaning on each other for support. And, um, and that, you know, that, that'll translate around the world, no matter who you are, where you are, um, as long as you have that for me anyway, uh, then I feel like I'm in a good place. So yeah, you, when you were talking about the mentoring and the speaking, what came to mind for me, and I don't say this to like throw shade or take away from anybody who is in the helping, you know, profession or even just a, a helper in the world that hasn't gone through things. But I feel like generally the, God, that sounds terrible to say the best helpers, but people identify with people who've been through shit, right? And it always, always had to be the exact same shit, but it really does carry some weight when you have a very similar background or history. And for you to not only do you have this history of the way you grew up, but when you mentioned like the working with veterans and the PTSD and what came to mind for me was like, I've been in some, some car accidents and the experience of a car accident, if you've never been in it, it is this like screeching metal, fucking horrendous death sound going on when you're in it, right? It is a traumatic experience for sure. And so to have that kind of thing inside of you that has happened to you in your life, I feel like it just gives you a way to connect with people who have those experiences, right? Anybody who's been through an experience that caused PTSD, anybody who's been through an experience of not liking themselves, anybody who's felt that experience, which I surely felt of like, oh my God, this substance makes allows me to talk to people and girls and like be myself, like you have that ability to connect with them on a level that I feel like some people are just not going to have. And that's so authentic and so useful in what we do. Right. And, and th there'd be so many guys in the program when I was mentoring and counseling them and, you know, they would, they would want it because there, there was also obviously the, the civilian counselors there. And, you know, the guys would tell me, they'd be like, man, like, even though this guy is smart, like he's got all the education, but like he hasn't been there. And that's why I like talking to you. Right. I prefer, I like when you lead our groups because like you've been there. And so it just, it just, you know, people identify and they want to know that you can really empathize with their pain. Right. Not just sympathize. Oh, I'm so sorry you had to go through that. But like, I really know what it felt, you know, for you to go through that because I went through something very similar. Right. People, people want you to be able to really feel what they are feeling. And so it does, it, it, it certainly does have its, you know, advantage. And I mean, you look at our profession, you know, it's, it's well over 50% of us have um, struggled with addiction ourselves, right? And so when people get clean and they find what works for them, then naturally they would want to give back. And give the best way to give back in this field is to, uh, either become, you know, a professional or become a volunteer and, and, and do some work, uh, 
in that in that way. And so it's certainly it's certainly um, it's not something I would have wished for my life. I wish I would have never become an alcoholic. I wish I would have had it all figured out, you mm. know, from day one. Um, but that wasn't that wasn't the path that I was I was meant to take, apparently. And so I'm, I'm you know, trying to trying to do the best I can to work this program the best way I can and to to, you know, fulfill the mission that I that I uh, set out set out to do all those years ago. But again, I do it one day at a time. And I'll just say that, you know, I I was I was worried before I got out. I was about six months to release. And now I'm really starting to think about the outside world. And I was apprehensive in the sense that I thought life would be kind of boring sober, if I'm being honest with you. Yeah. Because previously, all the way back to 14 years old, I had not been sober out in the free world. And so, you know, but let me just say, I've been out a little over a year now, a year and, and almost a month, and I have lived my best life. Like I have gone skydiving and surfing and taking a cruise to the Bahamas and I've been to Vegas and DC and, you know, went and saw my Oregon Ducks play up there in Seattle and, you know, just, 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 you know, traveling and, you know, doing things I normally wouldn't do. I went rock climbing. I mean, just, you know, stuff I had never done before. Right. But it's creating that same euphoric dopamine driven pleasure that we get from drinking, right. Or using drugs. And it's creating, it's, it's creating it naturally. And, and, and I can remember the next day, what I did the previous day, which is an awesome thing because I, you know, there were many days where the blackouts took that from me. So, you know, it, it is a myth. And again, our addicted brain will try to trick us when we're getting into, you know, uh, 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 recovery, we'll try to trick us and make us believe that life is going to be utterly boring, sober, right? Your addicted brain will try to convince you of so many untrue things, irrational things, because its sole purpose is to keep you drinking, right? That's why you have to strengthen your rational brain, which is the next day when you wake up and you're like, oh my God, what did I do yesterday? Why did I say, why did I do that? That's the part of your brain that you need to strengthen <laughs> because that's what's going to keep you, you know, kind of on your toes and, 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 and allow you to, to counter this ridiculous narrative that your addictive brain will tell you, because here's the thing, even, you know, a lot of people, um, they found that the number one reason, there's four reasons why, four primary reasons why people relapse. And the number one reason is negative emotional states. We hate to feel pain, whether it be grief or stress or worry, anxiety, we don't like that. And so once we have relied on alcohol to quell that, then we make that connection in our brain, our addictive brain, that this is a remedy for feeling these negative emotional states. And so, and so that's going to be kind of your natural default. And so you have to then, again, challenge that with your logical brain that says, yes, it may take it away temporarily, but it's only going to cause greater problems later, right? And it doesn't take away, it doesn't take away the pain. It numbs it for a few hours. But when you sober up, Whatever it is you were dealing, it's still there, right? And so we just have to we just have to remind ourselves of that and have people around us to you know hold us accountable. And you know, we, you know, we need like we nobody can do recovery by themselves, in, in my opinion. Like this is not done in isolation. 
Because the worst place we can be when we're feeling bad is by ourselves, right? That's the worst place we can be as a, an addict or alcoholic. So anyway, I I, I don't want to you know get too long winded here, um, you know. But I'll just I'll just say that you know there is help out there. Uh, there is nine eight eight for anybody going through an emotional crisis. The number is nine eight eight. I'm so glad this this happened uh, last Saturday nationwide, wherever state you're in. You can call somebody and talk to somebody if you're going through, you know, a, a hard period. If you're in recovery, not in recovery, doesn't matter. Um, you can have somebody to talk to and they can connect you with mental health and substance use resources in your community. There are online resources that are free. There are in-person resources, uh, you know, that, that, that are available. Um, Insurance-based, non-insurance-based, self-pay, no pay. I mean, you name it, it is out there. So please do call 988 people when you need somebody to talk to. And, and the only add-on I would put onto there when you talk about life not being boring in you know recovery or in states without using substances, if you are listening to this podcast for whatever reason and you know you've tried recovery before and found that you just could not have fun or just could not find joy or maybe you're there right now right maybe you're in that place you're like i want to hold on to to not using these substances i just no matter how long i wait it seems like there's not this joy coming from just living naturally right seek professional help because there are states of the brain there are chemical problems there are things that go on that lead us to using and it's possible that there's some form of help or medicine or talking or, or therapy or whatever it is that can assist you with that because that's a real thing right we we do have this problem of connecting to joy or or euphoria without substances and i i just want to throw that in there i i, I don't i guess i spent a lot of time thinking uh or feeling the shame of like something's just wrong with me that i can't be happy bowling like the guy next to me and for me, it took learning that like, oh, yeah, there's some underlying stuff here that prevents me and I need to address that, too. Um, one thing I wanted to ask, because uh, I was, you know, state property for a, a period of time. It's not really the environment that like uh, sparks conduciveness to like living a positive life and doing good things in your life. So how challenging did you find that in that population to kind of take this alternate path and not really be a part of what people were doing in there. Uh, yes, you are very <laughs> right. It, it is not the most wholesome place to, you know, uh, uh, to, to find yourself turning over a new leaf. But, you know, again, during that first year of my incarceration, when I was in the county jail, not the state prison, but when I kind of figured out, you know, who I wanted to be and the work I wanted to do. So I was locked in on that. So when I got to state prison, I immediately, you know, got a job as 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 a tutor in the education department. So I'm helping guys with their GED programs. So I was there for like five or six hours a day. And then when I would come back, I would, you know, go work out or go jog or, you know, uh, uh, write letters because I got on a pen pal website. And that's how I ended up meeting my fiance. She stayed with me for the 16 years, the next 16 years. And now we live together today. Right. I mean, it's, it's incredible. I, I've been incredibly blessed throughout this, throughout this journey. But, but at any rate, so, so once I was locked in on this mission and the most important thing I learned through that 17 and a half year sentence, as far as doing time the right way, at least in Oregon, I can't, I mean, other States are different, much more hardcore. Oregon is not so much, although we did have gangs and riots and all that. 
if people saw that you were consistent in how you did your time, then they pretty much left you alone. Like I, I was cool with, you know, the Bloods and the Crips and the 18th Streeters and like everybody knew me because they saw me as the guy who was a tutor, who was working on his college, you know, stuff and, and going to AA and I was consistent. The guys get in trouble when they come in and they may want to start off that way, but then they feel like, well, I need this protection by these guys. If something happens, I don't want to be by myself. So I'm going to click up with them. Right. Mm -hmm. But then I'm also going to try to, you know, go straight over here. And when, when guys see that you're not consistent, then you're kind of, you know, you're kind of left out there blowing in the wind and anything, anything can happen at that point. And so and it was sad because so many of the young guys coming in were, were easily influenced by these older guys, of mm -hmm. course, to, you know, join this gang, click up with this group. And, you know, it was a sad thing to see. I was, however, able to get through to some of those guys when I got in more into the mentor role because the guys would seek me out. I'd be on the yard. And I did a lot of time by myself because I didn't want to I didn't want people to get the wrong idea if I'm, you know, working out with this group over here or hanging out with this group over there. So I would be walking around the track or jogging around the track and a young guy that I would I would work with up in the education department would seek me out. And he would just start talking to me about non-prison stuff, right? Because he felt that it was a safe space because he saw that I wasn't like a lot of the other guys. I didn't walk around with, you know, my chest, you know, puffed out and, you know, trying to be Mr. Tough Guy. And so they would start talking to me about life. And that would lead into talking about some some pretty heavy stuff, you know, childhood traumas and 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 fears and, you know, why they joined the gang and you know, things that they wanted to do when they got out of prison, right? These, these, these aspirational things that they knew they couldn't really talk to anybody else about because that would make them weak, right? That would make them appear weak and vulnerable. And so it was a great way for me to really kind of connect with people on a real level and give these guys something else to think about, you know, uh, beyond prison. And so I was able to really get through to some people, some people not so much, but um, you know, it was, it was a great thing for those, for those I was able to connect with. That's awesome. You know, I, I want to ask this next question and I, I want to preface it by saying it's kind of hard to ask it without the acknowledgement uh, of minorities and people of color. And, you know, so that, that does come into this. I, I know when people have their own level of responsibility, right? Like you, you own what you did in this place sometimes it's hard to also have space for other aspects of what goes on in our world right so i'm just curious has there been any ability for you to allow space for anger towards our system right and, and i say that because like i'm picturing like some wealthy individual some lawyer's son that has this accident that maybe gets probation right Maybe he's white, maybe he's not. Whatever, he's got money. That's one of the big dividers between us. Have you had any space for that kind of anger or frustration with our society that like, why did I do 17 and a half years when somebody else wouldn't? I mean, and, and it's not to take away from the responsibility because you own that fully. I'm just curious what your, your thoughts on that are. That's a profound question because I did wrestle with that um, pretty much throughout my entire sentence. And even today. Now that I'm free, I mean, that will never leave me in the like, I, like, again, I would never want to minimize or seem like I'm, you know, dismissing, um, you know, the 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 magnitude of, of, of what happened. Two people lost their lives. Another was permanently disabled. Right. I can never change that. 
And so it's like, then you have to ask yourself, well, well, what, what value do we place on that life being taken? Oregon says 10 years, that that life essentially demands a 10 year penalty. Other states, it may be two years. Some states it's probation, right? So there's this whole sub subjectivity to that. But then for me, for me personally, I'm looking at the newspaper throughout this sentence. And eventually I stopped looking at it because I would feel, um, you know, that anger would come up when I would see this very thing had happened to somebody else who was of a different social economic background, racial makeup, whatever the case. And it would be a severely less penalty, you know? There was, and I'll tell you, there was, there was, you know, to juxtapose my situation um, on January 4th. So four days later, there was a DUI crash in Portland committed by a 28-year-old uh, white woman, never been in trouble. She uh, hit a mother and her 10-year-old son in a crosswalk. She was intoxicated. She was at 0 0.08. So she was right at the legal, the legal limit. And she didn't take accountability the whole time. She, you know, refused to say it was, it was her fault. So she was in a road rage incident. Somebody was chasing her and she was trying to get away. But she was intoxicated to begin with. Let's just start there. So she went to trial. She, she wants to get off this thing completely. She gets found guilty of not manslaughter in the first degree, but manslaughter in the second degree, which required a mandatory minimum of six years, three months in prison. But she's got two of them. So the judge, instead of running everything consecutive, so it'd be over, you know, 12 and a half, you know, 12 and a half years, the judge runs everything concurrent. She gets a total six years, three months. And she is devastated. She's, oh my God, I can't believe this happened to me. This is so, you know, unjust. And I'm just like, are you kidding me right now? Like I'm in prison for three times that amount of time. I took full responsibility. I'd never tried to skirt you know, uh, 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 you know, accountability. Mm -hmm. And, and it's just, it, it, it blew my mind. And, you know, it, there were so many other cases of, you know, older prominent people in the community, this would happen. They would kill somebody drunk and they would get two years probation or they would get, you know, a year in, in, in county jail or something like that. And so I just had to stop. I had to stop, um, uh, you know, watching those news stories and, and reading about those things. Because, of course, I can say that, you know, although I needed to be in prison for what I had done, there's no there's no doubt about it. But the disparities in the, in the way that we charge, the way that we sentence, um, you know, uh, uh, minorities in this country, not just Oregon, but in this country, is atrocious. Mm -hmm. It is atrocious. And not only are you locking people up at this, you know, disproportionate rate, with these, you know, very lengthy sentences, you're not providing much in the way of rehabilitation. The not only reason why I was able to get my degrees and get certified is because my dad left me money when he passed away to pay for it. Otherwise, I would have released from prison with a GED. And I'm not saying that's, I mean, that's, that's something, right? But let's be honest, like, how far is that going to get you in this world today? Right. I mean, it's just, it's, it's just sad. So it's just, you know, it's a, it's a twofold, you know, uh, uh, atrocity that we lock people up, throw away the key, and then do nothing to rehabilitate them. How is that a, a, a winning recipe? I'm actually mad right now because my charges 
uh, back in the days of, of checkbooks, you know, before we don't have them anymore. People don't know what they are. But back in the days of checkbooks, I sold somebody's checkbook and wrote two checks to myself for a total of $90. And I did six years. And I'm like, damn, wow. this lady killed people. <laughs> six years, three months. Wow. So, yeah, our, our, our system is messed up. And, and, you know, to even speak a little further to what you were saying, because I only, only had six years. I didn't qualify to get into any of the like trade programs or anything. You had to have like 20 or more to get into right. something like that. So it's like, oh, well, we'll take people who we could possibly have lesser charges and, and rehabilitate them and give them something. But they are not going to qualify to actually have a life when they go home because you need to be here longer to be on the waiting list for that shit. 100%. And it was the same thing. You know, we know that 80% of people across the United States who are incarcerated have some issue with drugs and or alcohol, whether it be they're addicted, whether it be they're, you know, selling it, whether it be they're committing a crime to get the money to buy it, whatever, 80%. And in Oregon, in Oregon at least, and I would imagine this is replicated across many states, but only about 5% of the population had access to a drug and alcohol uh, program, mm. 5%. And again, it's that whole thing. If you have more than three years on your sentence, you're not eligible because they only wanted to give those who had three years or less that program if you were lucky enough to go to a prison that actually had it because they're thinking, well, you're going to be out in a few years, so we want to get you some treatment. But what about the guy who still has, you know, who, who's doing 10 years and he wants to start working on himself, right? Right. And he, when he gets down to three years, he may not be lucky enough to transfer to one of these prisons that has the program. Mm -hmm. And so we spend so much money incarcerating people and not enough money uh, actually rehabilitating them and getting them the help that they need to address the underlying issues of why they're incarcerated in the first place. Yes. I feel like now I need to find somebody to that knows all the facts and numbers to come on so we can do an episode about the state of our prison systems across the yes. U.S. Because it's atrocious. I agree. It really is. Maybe that's where my hopes for Oregon go. Like, they've decriminalized all these things. They're really looking progressive on that note. And maybe just at this point in time when I arrive there, maybe it does look like a fucking disaster. But maybe in 20 years, when the money from the prison system starts going into these programs that actually help people, because it's not a criminal act anymore, it's a struggle, right? Maybe that money does get reallocated and maybe things do turn around. And maybe in 20 years, I go to Portland and I'm like, holy fuck, this is what I thought I was going to see 20 years ago. It just takes time. So I can actually speak to that. Okay. So when they decriminalized... Um, small amounts of methamphetamine and heroin and cocaine and things like that. What happens is these people go to court and then the judge tells them to call me. Huh. So I actually work on the, it's called the telephone addiction recovery center line. And these people have to call me or one of my few colleagues, there's like six of us in the state that do it. And we perform a screening with them, a drug and alcohol screening. So we ask them a series of questions about their addiction and things like that. And a lot of people will call and they just want to they just want to get through the screening, get the certificate of completion, go to court, get their fine dropped. Right. Mm -hmm. But, you know, what happens is, by and large, is that I'm able to have a conversation with them, because even if they're in, you know, pre-contemplation, we have the stages of change right. and pre-contemplation. You're not even thinking about it, you know, so on and so forth. So even if they're in pre-contemplation, I can still 
kind of plant that seed about where there might be a problem here. So I'm not saying you have to get into treatment today, but let me give you some resources. Let me text you some resources in your community or online, whichever you're more comfortable with, so that they, they will be there if the day comes where you, where you want some help. And so I'm able to offer people resources and just talk to them and plant that seed. Some people are more in uh, contemplation or preparation. That's a great thing because now I can get them connected with uh, substance use and mental health resources. But yeah, that's um, there hasn't been. And I'll say that the the so there's there's some big things happening on that front right now. So the Oregon legislature did pass. Um, like 270 something million dollars to go into this big infrastructure in every community where these behavioral health uh, networks are going to kind of, you know, work in tandem to be able to get people who call us when we refer them to places, then they will like if they need housing for a few days, if they need, you know, the treatment, if they need social services, whatever it is, we can directly be able to see what's available in their community through this whole system. And, you know, uh, then we'll like do a, a, a warm transfer, you know, to get them connected and they'll take it from there. And so that um, that is just kind of coming online, if you will. Uh, every county has to apply for a grant and some of them have been approved already. So now they're kind of getting their framework together to be able to actually go live with this. But that that should be happening hopefully before the end of the year. So it's been a slow rollout and there's been some criticism in the newspapers and things like that, that, you know, this whole decriminalization is just not working because people aren't getting into treatment like we, we hope they would. But I would suspect that a year from now, uh, you would definitely see some movement on that in, 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 a, in a good direction. So I'm excited about that and to be a part of that. Yeah, that is hopeful. I mean, uh, and, and, you know, I wish I could remember facts and figures way better, but one of those Nordic countries over there invested a lot of money heavily in the youth um, to try to curb their issue that was going on, I think, with alcohol at the time. And it took 20 years to really start to see the, re not to start to see, but to see like final research driven results like this worked. Holy shit. And so sometimes it does take time. Um, speaking of time, we are running short on time. Jenny, is there anything you wanted to add? I feel like you've been so quiet. Over oh, there. I knew I would be quiet too, because I just, Martin's story is so fascinating, intriguing, inspiring. I, I just wanted to hear that. And I think, I think our audience just wants to hear that too, not me, but I, um, how can our audience hear more Martin Lockett? What's, what's going on with your life? What's your future? So, yeah, so there's martinlockett.com. I post a lot on, on Instagram at Martin L. Lockett. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm, so I'm, I'm working now here with Pennsylvania because all my roots are kind of in Oregon and I'm pretty established there and I do stuff through them remotely and whatnot every month. But I'm looking to get set up here in Pennsylvania to start speaking in the schools. When the schools come back, I've been reaching out to school boards and superintendents they seem to be uh, somewhat interested. I have reached out to all the state police departments to be a part of their DUI training when they're training new cadets and things like that. I've gotten a couple good responses. And um, and then I'm gonna be working with some of the counties, uh, the, the, the district attorneys here who run the driver safety programs. And so I'm gonna, gonna be meeting with them here hopefully in the next couple of weeks to um, get the 2023 calendar uh, going where I'll be you know, set to speak uh, at some of their classes. And so 
just looking to build a presence here in Pennsylvania. And uh, we'll still do, you know, some things, obviously, in Oregon. That'll always be kind of my home base. But, um, yeah, martinlockett.com and, and at martinlockett on Instagram to kind of see what I got going on. That's awesome. Martin, is there anything else that you wanted to share with us today that we didn't ask or didn't address? Uh, no, I would just, I would just, uh, you know, say for you guys to keep doing what you're doing. This is so incredibly important, the work that you guys do and delivering messages from all walks of life, uh, but that all have a common thread when it comes to this disease of addiction. And so, you know, we're, we're all in this together, right? We're all in community when it comes to this, no matter where you are on this vast planet, um, you know, we are, we are uh, uh, doing this together. And so please, um, you know, do reach out for help. Again, 988 is there or, you know, whatever you have in your state. And, um, and let's just continue to do this together and be there for one another. So thank you guys for what you do. It was an honor to be here. And um, yeah, I just, I, I'm just really grateful. Man, it was so great to have you on. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you for doing what you do. Thank you for really picking up the torch and, and having the fire inside to just uh, to really shine that light into some of the darker places in our country and in our world. Um, thank you so much. And, and hopefully this isn't the last time we, uh, we talk to you, Martin. Indeed. Thank you. All right. Have a good day, man. Did you like this episode? Share it with people you think might get something out of it. Check out the rest of our episodes at recoverysortof.com. Also, while you're there, you can find ways to link up with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Reddit, YouTube, anything. We're always looking for new ideas. Got an idea you want us to look into? Reach out to us. <laughs>